So thank you for coming to today's popular culture dialogue on pedagogy and popular culture. Um, the kind of idea here was to get us when we're in that frame of mind, when we're starting to teach <laughs> or getting ready to teach for the upcoming academic year, whenever yours starts, however long each term is, um, I wanted to maybe have this conversation about how we have brought popular culture into our classrooms as a pedagogical tool. And, you know, just to give some advice to anyone who's maybe wanting to do the same, either because it's something that they love studying and are interested, or if it's, you know, a way maybe to connect with students. Although I find as I get older and my students don't, that's connecting is, is, is getting hard. Um, but then again, they kind of like it when I ask them what is Bay and they and I try to figure out their pop culture and they like educating me. Um, <laughs> but I want to thank you all for, for coming as we do normally. I'm just going to let you introduce yourselves and we will go around the clock starting with my managing editor, Julia. There we go. <laughs> Hi everyone, uh, my name is Julia Largent. I am the managing editor of PCSJ. So if you have ever submitted anything, you've probably been in contact with me as well as if you are a reviewer, you, I'm the person that you've probably emailed with. Um, if you'd like to do either of those things, just visit our website, we're pretty cool. Um, I'm an assistant professor at McPherson College in the middle of Kansas where I teach the media side of most of our communication courses as well as um, the journalism as well. And Julia, I think you just told us that your next academic year starts August 17th. Yes, classes start the 17th. We start faculty workshop on the 11th. So I've been course planning for the last week or so, including today until about an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> Mine starts on, what is it, the 30th, August 30th? Wow, I'm a little bit envious of that. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's see if anyone can beat Julia in terms of how early their academic year is starting. Um, RAs reported today, if you really want a culture shock, RAs reported to campus today for training. Okay. <laughs> I'm not ready. <laughs> let's go down below me then to Linda. Hi, um, I'm Linda Howell, and I'm an assistant professor of English at the University of North Florida. I also am the director of the writing program and uh, the writing center. And um, so that's kind of, uh, and we've actually used uh, uh, a lot of pop culture in our first year writing courses, as well as some um, fan studies approaches. So. And when do you go back, Linda? When does your academic year start? Uh, we start on the 23rd, but since I'm 12 months, it never ends. <laughs> yes, and that, that is something I've noted. I don't know if, if anyone else here has been department chair or anything yet, but we're supposed to be off contract in the summer, but. Oh, yeah. No, no, that, no. That, that don't happen. <laughs> I was like, summer? What's that? <laughs> it's warmer. Yay. <laughs> Thank you, Linda, for, for being here today. Yeah. We're going to go down then to a newcomer, first timer on the dialogue. Let's go down to Alexander. 
Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Alex Lester, Alexander Lester. Um, I am a doctoral student at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, right outside of Scranton, like the office. Um, I'm an adjunct faculty at Labrae College, um, which is located um, in Milton, Massachusetts. I teach online for them. Um, and I also teach at Lackawanna College, which is a Scranton school. Um, and I teach uh, philosophy and social science for them. So I'm kind of an interdisciplinary guy. I went to Bowling Green um, and I studied pop culture there for a little while, um, but graduated with a degree in education. So I do kind of um, the mixture of pedagogy um, and pop culture, it's sort of my vibe. I also created the um, Pedagogy and Pop Culture Conference. It was a Twitter conference that Julia was a part of, and that's how I met uh, you. And yeah, so um, that was my master's project and um, it's exciting to be here, so yeah. Yes, I remember that, that Twitter conference, that's wonderful. I'm gonna hope, I would love to have you talk more about the actual design of it and to know that that was a master's project. Wow, that's really cool. It was awesome Definitely. COVID. And so it was like a virtual conference before they were cool. I was always a hipster. <laughs> yeah. Are, are virtual conferences cool? Well, I mean, it, uh, some people really like them. Some people really don't. So. And it's interesting because the idea of a Twitter conference still is novel because there have only been really kind of three organizations that have done it, mine and then two other people that I was inspired by. Um, and so even though Twitter has been incorporated in conferences, it wasn't ever the primary theme, right? And yeah, I can go on and on about that, but I'll let everybody else introduce themselves. <laughs> All right, well, thank you for that. And then, yeah, it, it is interesting to, to think about, you know, when we did these experiments and, and these tests ahead of time, how we had no idea what was coming. <laughs> all right, thank you, Alex, for being here. We're gonna go over then all the way across the other side of the world, at least from me, to Aaron. Uh, kia ora, hello everyone. Um, I am from Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, originally Canadian, but I am um, an immigrant, a settler colonist visitor here. Um, I'm a PhD researcher um, in equity and diversity in the workplace. And my teaching background has always been in the corporate spaces. So I come from a technology consulting uh, window. So pop culture has always been at the very heart of everything that I teach because you gotta get to the nerds. You gotta get to the heart of the nerds and it, and it doesn't matter how you get to them. Um, you just, you got to find a way to connect with them. So I come from that space. Um, now, of course, in academia, I primarily teach in management. So I'm really trying to get to the heart of those students. Um, and we are in week three. So our semester is well on its way, but it's actually semester two here because it is the middle of winter. Now I say winter. Um, it is going to be 17 degrees Celsius today. So that's about 64, 65. Um, not a terrible winter life, um, but our semesters are flipped. So first semester um, for us is in uh, February and uh, second semester is happening now. So um, I am actually in the process of getting ready for some marking. Yay. Um, 102 essays coming my way on Friday. Um, and of course I'm in the future. So for me, it is Thursday morning 
And uh, I want to tell you, the rest of the week looks pretty good for you folks. Well, that's that's good to hear. I always worry about that. I'm glad to know that the world is still existing in the future, so, or at least tomorrow. So. <laughs> Aaron, Aaron do, do you still have like a term off? Is So does summer off still exist there? I guess I never um, understood that. Uh, yes. Yeah. So our primary, like our, this semester finishes in November and then we go into um, the winter break. We've just come off midwinter break, which was, it's about a month long. Um, it's a little bit quirky because most of like New Zealand and Australia, you'll find are actually on holiday for the month of January. Um, so people take four weeks off. Well, pe people get four weeks of vacation. So I guess we should start with, with that sort of quality of life indicator. Um, but people take four weeks off. So you'll find like nothing happens. Um, people don't answer their phones. They don't answer emails. They say they're out of office and they go dark. Um, so our, like our big scurry for getting ready for the school year doesn't really start until February. Um, and then chaos ensues. And we begin all of the things and worrying about cheating and all of those good, good times, good times. So yeah, our year is flipped, um, but uh, the semester is, you know, the same basic format. So we run, um, you know, sort of depending on the course between 12 and 16 weeks of instruction with a mid break in the middle and um, short courses are about six weeks long and well, to teach and or to participate in, um, we all know that they are a little bit sucky. Yeah, well, I, I guess it's good to know that we're not so different, even though we're on different sides of the planet. Now, we just use Celsius and metric like everybody except for America. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Well, we also don't get vacations mandatory in America either, so hey, <laughs> USA. Um, and our, our last uh, panelist for today then is Laura. Hi everyone. Um, so I'm Laura. I'm a PhD candidate in American studies in Madrid in Spain, in Universidad de Alcalá. And I've been teaching English for several years at schools. So from, from children from three-year-olds to 16-year-olds. So that's an interesting ground also to deal with popular culture as a pedagogical tool. And regarding the semester, we, we also take uh, holidays very seriously, as Erin was saying. Um, no one will answer, nobody at university will answer an email during August at all, nothing. Is, and so the semester starts in September and there is nothing happening from now till then. Oh, I, I miss that about being in Denmark and having, you know, complete downtime. And even when I was working in Hollywood, they basically take all of December off um, from what I could tell. We still had to go to work because I was just a lowly assistant, but there wasn't really much to do. I remember playing a lot of games on the computer and this was early 2000s. So not a lot of interesting games on the computer. <laughs> All right, well, thank you everyone for, for being here. Um, as I've said in the past, we're basically just here to talk and to you know ask questions, answer questions, just to get a conversation going. And I thought I would throw out maybe a, a big one right now that we could use to 
get a little bit further. Ooh, but I see we have one of our other panelists is coming in. Anna, can you hear me? Maybe. Anna, are you there? Okay. Anna, would you, would you mind introducing yourself and, and what brings you here today? If not, that's okay. Okay. Well, as, as Anna's working through her, her tech um, so that we don't have um, silence when we're going through all this, I just kind of want to get us started then on tips, advice. I mean, you've had experience with different types of students, different types of classes, and bringing popular culture in for these, these learning experiences. What would be some tips you give to people about how to do so? What did you find that works? What doesn't work? What would you advise people to do when it comes to using popular culture in the classroom? I'll start. Um, I guess one of the first things I would advise is figure out what the purpose of the use is. Right. So, what do you what do you want to use it for? Is it you know, is it for content engagement? Is it for kind of understanding how something's produced? Is it understanding how something's consumed, how something's made or unmade? Um, so that's where I would start. It's like you know, <clears throat> what am I what am I actually using this for? Um, and then kind of go from there. Linda, have you had any like? good or bad examples of, of when yeah. that was important? So one of the things that I have found to, to be, um, so I've done several, I mean, I've done so many assignments, I've been teaching for almost 20 years. <laughs> um, but um, uh, one of my most successful one, uh, assignments has been to um, basically uh, engage them in understanding how something is rhetorically made. Right, so thinking about like audience and purpose and and pop, and pop culture. I mean, the classic thing is always to use advertising, right? I mean, you've seen that again and again. But uh, a lot of times, because advertising is a weirdly kind of hidden thing, um, we're kind of immersed in it. Uh, getting them to think about those texts in that way, it's like, who is this being produced for, right? Who is this? Uh, who is the audience? Because maybe you're not the audience. And so that's uh, the rhetorical analysis is always kind of the a go-to and often successful. Yeah, definitely. I know when we teach introduction to communication theory, basically when, with rhetorical analysis, we encourage go to pop culture that you know, and and the trick is to have them engage with it more critically, really. Yeah. And sometimes having them redo part of it to redo mm. the, you know, to uh, you know, change it in some way to make it for a different audience, to change it in some way to make it for a different purpose. Mm -hmm. um, so you can kind of do several steps, and I, I've done you know I've done kind of variations of that for years. Cool, Julia. Yeah, I guess my starting point would be depending on if you're doing it as like a semester-long class or if you're just doing it as an activity. Um, there's two different approaches. For the semester-long class, I would start with something that you yourself as the instructor likes and that you know about. 
um, but also finding that balance that it's something that the students would like. For example, one of my very first semesters on pop culture was Harry Potter focused. And that was because I know Harry Potter, I know the world, I know the story, I know a little, you know, I, I know the fandom, et cetera. And so it takes some of the pressure off of, you know, trying to figure out how to, how to structure popular culture focused course when you don't have to also learn something new. Um, the nice thing about Harry Potter is, is it also resonates with a, with a lot of students still. Um, and so there's that nice marriage of something that you like as well as what students like. Um, if you're doing something just like an activity in the class, um, I still frequently include things that I like. I have a day in public speaking where I show Buffy, um, an episode of Buffy, I use Hush to talk about nonverbal communication. It is a very loose tie-in, but it's also my way of introducing the next generation to Buffy. Um, it's getting smaller and smaller, the number of students in the class who actually have heard of Buffy, let alone have watched it. So um, I like to use a lot of things that I like, but also um, I'm young enough that I still sometimes know what they like um, or have heard about it, um, but not always. So I try and incorporate references to my favorite TV shows, which are also frequently what they're watching too. Like to go next? Give us your advice. Erin? Um, I guess for me, it's knowing who your student is, right? So because I've taught some like, we call them mature adult learners, the same way as I've taught, you know, a 17 year old student that's, that's just sort of tackling higher education. I think we've got to know who they are and not assume as much as we used to. Um, I had an amazing dialogue about friends being problematic um, with some university students because there is this um, generational rewatch movement that's happening that a thing that I watched in real time on Thursday nights because I am from yesteryear um, th that thing that I loved at the time and didn't realize was problematic now they're actually looking at it with these really great critical eyes and they're like you know Ross was a bad guy he was you know a prof sleeping with a student who got tenure for doing one paper um, you know, all of these things that they're seeing um, that let us connect. And there's also this, this kind of beautiful place of many students are in love with what's new and they'll actually bring the, the matching story to whatever that problematic discussion is. And they're like, oh, but I saw this in. And it, it helps for me, at least it helps me to connect back to you know what, I didn't, you know, I didn't see that in the good place. So I can go rewatch that and I can find that theme so I can use it again. Or, you know, I've been working on something on Black Widow that I think is really exciting as a person who has been engaged with comics for a while. Um, and so I think, I think there's these great places for us to see um, in different ways. And even to revisit them so that when we're talking to that student, when we're finding out who they are and what they care about, we can find out that yes, they are, I don't know, a Voyager fan or they will choose Star Wars over Star Trek. And you can have those, those conversations with them that are, that are different because they give you some of themselves. And we see all of those 
those matches, you know, what's the hero's journey? Well, is it, is it Neo? Because, you know, he's my favorite hero, but that's not necessarily um, going to be their favorite hero and they'll give them to you. They, they, if you can get them talking and not have black screen of death, we can get so much out of them. And then I find for me, at least it's this, like, I get so many aha moments from them because I'm like, oh, I didn't, I didn't see it that way. And I think, I think when we start to know who our students are and we, we find out what they love, we can, we can one fall in love with it ourselves, which is awesome because that's how fandom expands. And we can also let them be teachers. And I think that gives them some, some autonomy. And especially if you can be in a real room, like we're, we're in real rooms again. Um, luckily New Zealand is COVID free, but you know, even in a digital space, when they, when they turn their cameras on, when they turn their voices on, when they jump in the chat screen, they can give us these things. And I think that's when, that's when it's sticky for them, then whatever lesson we're trying to teach them, um, regardless of what the content is, that's when it sticks for them. And they're going to remember it two years from now that we had a conversation about, you know, what face huggers mean to me. And I think that that just gives us such a story. Oh, if, if I could find one of my students who knows Voyager, let alone is a fan of it like I am, I might not let them ever graduate because I want to keep them around because that would be amazing to me to have someone like that. So thank you, Aaron, for um, that good discussion of benefits because I just want to dive into benefits more too when we get into this. And so far we've heard some really good ones. Um, Laura, Alex, which would... Any advice you want to give to add on to what we heard? Yeah, sure. Um, oh, wait, Laura, do you want to go? It's fine, go. Okay. Um, yeah, so I really think it's interesting because I'm kind of hearing themes here of, right, being strategic with using um, pop culture. So it kind of reminds me of backward design and the need to really have, you know, our identified desired results and how we're using the pop culture um, whatever that be, um, to, you know, develop relationships, which, right, you need vulnerability to have conversations around humanities and social sciences. That's just a fact. Um, and whether that be the goal, right, which seems to kind of be how Aaron uses it, or whether it be, you know, a tool to get across, um, you know, nonverbal communication. Um, and that can also be, right, how we can even incorporate it into our measurements. Um, so if we're assessing students, right, um, it, it, I think pop culture is something that's really exciting about it is it allows for informal assessments that can kind of cultivate grades, right? Depending on if you, like if you decide to do a screening um, of a film or whatnot, and you have a dialogue, that could actually be an assessment based on how they're applying the theory behind it. So I teach ethics um, quite a bit. And so if I'm having them um, pull out, you know, utilitarianism out of, you know, some kind of superhero film, or just even, you know, yeah, any, any superhero film, right? <laughs> utilitarianism, save the one, save the many. Um, and kind of uh, just have them talk through the idea, then I actually prevent the need for, right, a test possibly, a written assessment, um, and I can assess, right, how they're interacting, how they're breaking down the ideas, and also fill in gaps. So I think it's a really cool way to get a pulse on the class, but really um, it needs to be used in tandem with an end goal, right, this idea of um, what are our desired results um, instead of just 
trying to lead with um, kind of necessarily just passion because I think passion has a place, right? Like this idea of introducing students to things that get you excited because I talk about soap operas and things that middle-aged women love because that's who I am as a person. Hallmark movies are my jam. Like there was a moment where I was gonna become a Hallmark scholar. That was my jam. Like that's who I was. Um, and my students are like, my grandmother watches Hallmark movies um, or my great grandmother I've gotten before. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm like, okay. Um, but right. So the idea that uh, we can get them excited, but also um, meet people where they're at. Um, it, it, it's really interesting because it's so flexible and fluid. So, um, but yeah, I think desired results is an important thing to keep in mind when we're using, utilizing it um, and being kind of more strategic instead of thinking of it, thinking of it as uh, the medium which can teach itself. Cause it can, right? There's obviously the discipline of pop culture. Um, but if we're teaching, you know, I teach philosophy. If I'm teaching philosophy, um, my, you can pull out themes of, um, you know, uh, you know, Marxism in, or just war theory in super, uh, what is it? Supernatural. There's a article on, uh, the episode where does anybody watch Supernatural? Yeah, no. Um, the the war episode of season three where like they're like in a battle. I don't know. Um, it's about witches. <laughs> That's all I remember. But they do just war theory in it and kind of break it down. So you can do a lot of cool things um, and bring concepts. But the stories themselves, right? All our pop culture is ultimately. Um, it can be a tool or it can be the thing we analyze. And we have to decide what is that desired result? Are we actually trying to teach them the concepts and the critical thinking skills or are we trying to um, alone just right analyze? So, yeah. Yeah, very good points too, because it, it's even possibly really important to take maybe a text that is teaching something that isn't necessarily a good thing and then to engage with that as a tool for teaching analysis and critical thinking and everything. So great. Um, Laura, what would you like to add as possible advice or tips? I, I was actually going to say the same thing about the, um, the goal, like keeping the goal in mind, um, but coming at it from the teaching a language perspective, because you, you see the pop culture object in a different way like you have to pay attention to different things to the language that it's used maybe the accent uh also the number of communication because that's something that sometimes is cultural and that helps you when you communicate in a different language that's not your own um and yeah i i, I it, it's interesting too how you can use this in the classroom to reinforce things that you're teaching in more say traditional boring ways like if you're studying grammar rules that's boring unnecessarily but you know for students sometimes it might become boring or repetitive and and it gives you it gives you quite a lot of room for them to let you know what popular culture they like because they can they can tell you and you can just kind of investigate a bit and try to find an example of something that you're teaching in class that you can use and make them engage and also in turn uh, work a little bit on media literacy, which I think um, sometimes in, in new generations, it's not as good as you might expect it because they they consume TikTok and YouTube for everything. I mean, I say they, me as well, but 
you know, they've been growing up with this and you will expect them to be very good at reading visual clues or, you know, audiovisual language. And they are sometimes not there. So, so I think this is useful to work on that set of skills besides even if you're actually teaching a language, it's, it's useful for, for that as well, I think. That's a really good point, Laura, about them not being as savvy as I think older generations expect. Um, it's that idea of the digital native. And I'm, I'm really hoping we've, we've, you know, gotten away from that now, this assumption that, oh, they grew up with the internet. They know how to do everything. It's like, no, that's ridiculous. So yes, that's a really good point when it comes to, well, also to literacy. Sorry, Alex. No, it's okay. I was over speaking. Um, it's also important to realize that this idea of the digital native, right, is very classist. Um, and we do, I think also this is a problem that, you know, educators we face is that we are around highly educated people that have not always, right, because I mean, a lot of us are first generation, I'm first generation. I know Aaron is, yeah, <laughs> team first gen. Um, but right, if we're I, you know, I didn't have a computer until I was uh, 2004, so I was like 14, 15, um, right? It wasn't part of my upbringing, but then I became like an expert in online teaching, right? Um, it, it's about accessibility though, right? Um, I still had the privilege of having a computer in my household. Um, how many students have that or don't have that, right? If you don't have the, um, there is a study I read that said basically the only difference between like a digital native and a digital nomad, I think they called them, was that uh, it's the regular use of accessibility, right? So if you only can use your phone for everything, for like video editing and whatnot, and you're then given a laptop and told to produce the same videos you produce for YouTube, um, but can't because you don't know how to use Final Cut Pro, um, it doesn't make you any less, right, um, accessible to that technology. So I think it is, an, it's actually interesting to think about because we do have hangups and I do, I, I have found myself being like, how do you guys not, you know, critically analyze this? But um, it's right, that's, that's our job too. <laughs> and I think we sometimes forget just because it is, we're in an echo chamber, even though we're also trying to push back against it. Um, we're still there. I would add to that. And I think that there are a couple of things that I would add. First, uh, uh, it's really important. So a couple of years ago, uh, we did a survey of our students uh, because, you know, there was some frustration with students not using spell check, right? I mean, it's like you're, you're producing papers. Why aren't you using? Well, a lot of our students were writing their papers on phones, right? So there's a kind of different, there's a different approach there. And there's a different way of understanding. So we actually leaned into it. We we produced like a video saying how to you know how to turn your dictation into a submission, right? So it's like not you know not saying you know don't do it. It's like okay, let's think about the habits that you formed and how to make those habits more productive. Um, and so and I also think that we should um, and going back to the accessibility thing in terms of understanding like I think of when I think of pop culture objects going back to that goal, like what am I using it for? And I try to avoid using it simply just for content, right? It's con content analysis. Like, you know, so one of the things that I really like to do, and th this is going back to your point, Laura, is so you can use editing, like looking at a video as kind of diction choices. Why did they choose this instead of that? Yeah, that's a sentence level con consideration to kind of try to contextualize them for, for them what it means, like what syntax means 
and maybe outside of the sen sense of just the language. Um, so thinking of like those objects in those ways that are beyond just content analysis, because I do think that there's always a danger of it just being that. Um, not that that's bad, but there are so many other ways that you can use pop culture objects that get students thinking about, I'm really into the production component of it. It's like, how, how is this being made and how do we unmake it that way? Um, so just kind of wanted to, to add that. I think it's also, oh, Erin, you can go. I'm sorry. I, I just wanted to build a little bit on kind of that collective idea, which is, you know, when we're talking about the, the classism in the academy full stop, you know, a lot of our students have never watched content not on their phones other than maybe in a movie theater and for most of them in the before times. Um, so they're missing subtleties in visual media at extraordinary le levels not because they're not capable of seeing them, uh, but literally because their device is limiting what they see. And when we're, you know, I had a conversation about using referencing software because, well, you know, as we do, and, you know, it's not a plug-in on your phone. It's, it, it's not helping the student who doesn't have consistent internet access and um, even though this is quite a small country, in the far north, there is all sorts of issues with consistent internet access in our rural communities. And so we've, we, we sometimes forget those things. So when we're using these tools, we gotta like, hey, you know what, you've never seen this on a big screen. You know, you don't have access to a Disney Plus account. So when I, like I showed Pearl uh, last year, um, to talk about, which is a like a short Pixar film, and it talks about you know inclusion and equality and bro culture in a, a really kind of fantastic way in a in a company setting, um, but it's all um, all cartoon and it's beautiful and short and and brilliant. But the subtleties that I can show on a giant screen in a classroom, the the conversation we can have in that format is so different than if I'd assigned it in the LMS and then they'd taken it in on their phone, they, they might not have seen things like the changes in color and the, the, the different pieces that are, are in that because we, we didn't give them a tool to, to see them. So I guess when I, when I think about the tools we're using and you know, I'm sure all of us have opinions about our LMS tool of record for our institutions. Um, and as a technology person, I have, I have thoughts, but when we, when we look at it, we, we kind of have to like, meet them where they are. Once again, you know, if you're looking at it on a phone that's got a cracked screen, cool. Then we're going to work with phone on a cracked screen. So it's, it's just one of those things that we have to kind of navigate and, and account for. And I guess that, that to me comes back to knowing who your student is. You know, I've got this like mix of fancy rich students and super, super not rich students. Um, cause we went fees free for first year in New Zealand. So you don't have to pay for your first year of university education now, but that means that I have like an extra layer of a class issue that a lot of times we just didn't account for in past sessions. Yeah. I also think I'm, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, it's just, we have, um, Anna, I know is, is, has her camera and mic active now. And I know Lauren has popped in too. And, and Lauren, if you can go mic live, we'll have, you speak to this too, but I want to give them a chance to first jump in and talk more about any tips or advice you have about um, using popular culture in the classroom. So Anna, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and first and maybe then giving us some tips or advice. 
Hello, everybody. Uh, sorry for the bit of mishaps, uh, technical. Uh, but I, I was listening most of it just since I since I uh, connected. I was listening. Um, I um, I am with uh, Laura. Uh, I'm the president of the U.S. Popular Culture uh, Studies Association, and uh, um, we we are. We are very interested in, in these kind of topics because we are planning uh, some work um, to we, we are planning some work uh, to, to be done in the university with students uh, about precisely uh, using popular culture texts uh, to teach or to stimulate at least uh, some media um, uh, literacy. Uh, because we we realize that um, at least in Europe is not something that it's taught at any level. I mean, it's it's not a subject, uh, absolutely not. So you have to maybe have a very good teacher or a very good professor that tries to integrate something like that uh, at whatever level in your in your education. But but it's not uh, a subject. So we thought that it would be very interesting to try to give some courses for university students, at least to start with university students to kind of stimulate this. And uh, uh, partly it came from the fact that I had to uh, write this. Um, I was invited, co-opted. Uh, <laughs> to to write this paper on the topic, and we had this survey uh, that was given to students, uh, about a hundred students in our university in courses in the English philology department in our uh, institute that is uh, dedicated to uh, American studies, and. These people, the answers really, um, I don't know, they were very interesting, but they were also uh, very diverse because we had some people that precisely, as you were saying now, um, they, they thought that the popular culture text, um, they're so familiar with them that they don't even see, um, I, I would say they underestimate the message that can be uh, given, the underlying whatever, anything. They just underestimate that because they think, oh, it's something that I just watch and there's no real either political message, there's no, uh, which is, I don't know, very curious to me uh, because I had one, one participant that, even said that uh, literature is more difficult to study and to analyze because there isn't really any message in a movie or there isn't really any message in a TV series. And that was shocking for me because, I, I mean, really nobody ever in your 23 years uh, told you that a movie can have have a message and a movie is telling you something just like literature, you know. Uh, and on the other hand, we had some students that felt that because they were so familiar with popular culture text, 
it would be much more difficult to analyze because they would just overlook you know, uh, whatever the message was because they're so used to it and precisely because they have this feeling that they might underestimate the, the problem. And even uh, when talking about the visual uh, part of what it could be a film or a TV series, uh, the answers were quite uh, contrasting because some would think that having visuals would make it much more easy to understand and to analyze, while some would find that having visuals uh, would make it even more difficult because you have to analyze more stuff. So uh, we're, I'm just trying to uh, tackle this, this uh, possibility to teach them a little bit more uh, critical uh, media literacy and to, to find a way for them to approach this text in a, in a much more critical way. And, you know, it's even fun. I mean, uh, we, we have talked about this, how some people feel that, that if they're going to critically analyze the popular culture text, they're not going to enjoy it anymore because they had fun watching the series and then they're like, oh, no, I'm, I'm just over-interpreting or I'm just going to pick things and it's not that good anymore because I see that there's some ideological message underlying it. I'm not liking it, but I was enjoying it as, as just entertainment, you know. And, and at the same time, there are other students that feel they would enjoy the course more uh, if, if they would have some, some more popular culture text because they find it limiting otherwise. So I'm just trying to, to see, I don't know, uh, pick up some ideas and see uh, what other people think about this and just uh, if there are some points in common, if you have observed uh, these kind of things in your students or in any way in people you've been talking with because the general public is, has very similar, I think, um, approaches and perceptions about popular culture. Uh, there's still, uh, I, I wouldn't say there's still that very strong um, stigma between high culture and low culture, but still there is the stigma between a popular culture text that you can just turn your Netflix on and watch or something more intellectual, more, you know, elevated. So I was just interested in seeing a bit what, what you guys have to, to say about it. Good question, Erin. For me, at least, it's about the rewatch, right? So I'm sure like a lot of you folks, I have what I consider comfort food content consumption. Um, it is it is things I know and I can just watch again and again and, and I can sort of um, disappear into that content and I stop watching it for what it is. And for me, one of those things used to be Gilmore Girls, um, which I guess I'm also telling my age with that, but, um, but I used to love it. I used to, you know, sort of fall into the trap and I could, any episode at any time and I could just kind of find a safe place. And one of the things that I found was somebody made a comment on a particular episode and all of a sudden I went back with critical eyes. And while well, one, it ruined Gilmore Girls for me because once again, 
sometimes when we look at things as a critic, it steals the things that we love. But we also have to kind of accept that stealing the things that we love because we're a new, different, growing person is good. And I think for me, at least, it's it's that second watch. It's that acknowledging that comfort content can still teach you a lesson. Um, you know, mac and cheese is just as nutritional, um, regardless of if it makes you feel good. So I guess I guess it's that for me. It, it's you know most of the the stories, every Hallmark movie is, you know, built on a Jane Austen foundation. We, we have the, the storytelling foundations in all of this content. So I guess it, when we go back to them and when we ask our students to go back to them, um, just looking for that one thing, that one piece of racism or classism or misogyny or whatever, um, and they find it, then that's, that's our chance to tell them about the the theory behind it or connect them to that um, that journal reading that we wanted them to read or that text chapter that we wanted them to engage with. So I guess for me, it's just that, it's that second watch. It's, we don't usually see it the first time or we, we don't have eyes to catch it all the first time. So I, it's interesting because I feel like, um, I'm kind of the opposite. If somebody likes, I like my sh my comfort food. I like my comfort shows destroyed and I still will go back and enjoy them. So one of my favorite shows, um, I'm also going to age myself, same age as around Aaron's age. Um, I'm obsessed with Charmed. I watched it, you know, while it came out, I was an avid consumer, but it is not a particularly good show. It's very problematic for feminism. It's very, uh, early 2000s feminism, pop feminism, where like at least Buffy was doing something subversive, where Charmed was kind of playing into it. Um, there's a lot of problems, right? And there's also like, not just the storyline, right? The continuity issues within that show, but there's like actual gaslighting of fans into thinking something didn't happen. I don't know if you guys are fans of it, but the whole idea that Cole was evil and he chose evil was not a thing that just came out of the air in season five um you know that that's a, but right like going through and like hearing and I, I watch critical podcasts because there's a hilarious one on Spotify I forgot what it's called but um I've literally listened to like all 100 episodes and like it actually makes it even more enjoyable because I can acknowledge it for what it was in its time right I think this is also like having students be uncomfortable with the things that they might enjoy and acknowledging that like, hey, Friends was written in the 90s when Hollywood was extremely racist and there were black and white shows. There were very few that did anything intertwining, right? We had Living Single and we had Friends. You didn't have, right, a black lead on a, a major network show unless it was a black show. And that's problematic. There's a lot of issues to unpack. However, does that mean we should then completely, um, you know, forbid people from watching Friends. Um, I mean, it's not a particularly great show, but it is, a lot of people find enjoyment and comfort in it. And why not? YOLO, right? Everybody's pop culture taste isn't the same. Um, but I also like think that we, if we can start doing that, right? If we can do it with the stuff that we actually enjoy and have an emotional investment in, we're actually gonna kind of create more empathetic, compassionate people, right? Because, um, we are learning to tolerate something for what it is, but not just tolerate, but embrace it for what it is, 
in its time frame, in its developmental growth. And yes, you might eventually over, like outgrow something, right? Um, but then there's right like when it comes to Gilmore Girls, you can still acknowledge it for its ridiculously fun, catty, amazing dialogue, right? Like it, it's very much a craftsman of its time, but it's also super problematic, right? But um, you can enjoy it for what it is. And I think that if we can get people to do that, we can also extend that to other human beings and not just texts, right? Because like our texts, we're just as emotionally invested in them as our um, personal relationships. So I think it's an interesting thing. It's, it's a way into kind of creating this more multicultural world that's accepting. I'd add on to that. And I think that there are a couple things I would think about. And that is one of the, especially for students entering the, the university, right? Understanding how to distinguish between liking something and finding pleasure in it and appreciating it for, for its function, for what it's doing. And I think for, you know, foregrounding that, right? It's like, you don't have to like something, but you have to appreciate what it's doing and what it's not doing right? The choices that are being made. And I do think that I agree with you, Alexander. It's, there's always the danger of trying to do a, a historical reading. It's like, okay, I'm going to take you know, my contemporary values and apply it here to a 1980s text. And that's like, you're not the audience for it. I mean, the audience was problematic, you know, and these are problematic, but, you know, it was not produced for you. <laughs> uh, you are an external viewer to a certain extent. Um, but like, and I think that's one of the things that pop culture objects are really good for getting students to think about that they hadn't really thought about before. It's like those, those layers of process. And I always think of it as process. I teach process, I don't teach product, right? I'm teaching you a process. And at the end of it, I want you to be able to ask the question, what do I do with this now? And be able to answer that, right? So what is it that you're gonna do with this now? I actually, I do that at the end of all my classes. I have them do a what now? Like, okay, what are you going to do with this now? And I think that that's really kind of where where you can really they have the they have the materials with which to to practice that. And to go back to, um, I think it was um, Aaron, your point. There is a benefit here in the fact that they're experts to a certain degree. Right, that in some of these in some of these objects, they are they are more expert than I might be, and acknowledging that expertise, but also kind of helping them to refine it in a way that's more productive for them in terms of their professional goals or you know or what we wanted them to do as citizens. Right, going back to the whole idea of media literacy, it's like I want you to be able to do this because there's a particular literacy that you need to be able to perform as an informed citizen, right? Because you're a voter. And if you can't do this, you know, then you might be not be able to do this in other areas. And that will frame how you understand the world. And it might be a mis a misframing. So that's where I would, you know. And that kind of brings up another question then too. And I, I think, one of the things I liked what Anna was talking about is this idea, and we actually were talking about this before Anna said something too. It's, it's this idea of gaps between us as the instructor and our students, whether those gaps are based on age or class or technology, or you know, this perception of, of you know, appropriate or inappropriate for an educational setting. 
how do you navigate those gaps? I mean, how, how do you make that work, Julia? Um, so one thing that a lot of my colleagues do, um, yeah, like on the first day of class, you have your standard index card or the, the information that you get from people, whether that's verbal or a lot of people use the index cards. One question that a lot of people will ask is, what is your favorite TV show? What is your favorite band? What is your favorite movie? And then one colleague of mine actually makes sure she includes at least one thing from each of her students throughout the semester. So if it's, you know, if a student really, really, really likes the office, she tries to incorporate the office somehow. Um, one thing that I do is I take attendance questions, which is not novel. I'm not the first one. Um, but a lot of those questions are um, kind of sneaking in this information of, all right, who, you know, who are you currently obsessed with? Like, what band are you currently listening to on repeat? What was the last thing you binged watched? Which is sometimes a dangerous question, but it's still pretty good. Um, and so that's kind of how I get that information. Um, the days I feel really old are the days where I don't know any of the musicians they're listening to. <laughs> and so um, normally movies and TV shows I'm still on, but musicians are where I usually don't know who they're talking about because it's usually country or rap and I don't really listen to either of those. Um, and so that's how I kind of gather that information from my students. And it, they don't see it as me bombarding them with, with inf like trying to get information. They actually miss the attendance questions the days I don't do them. They always ask, what about the question? Um, and so that's, that's what I do. I also comment on clothing. So like if a student of mine is wearing a t-shirt and I like the movie, I'll say, hey, I like your shirt or something. I myself have a ton of pop culture dresses um, and, and gear that I wear. Um, and sometimes it'll spark a conversation, conversation especially like our, I have a D20 uh, dress that'll uh, spark a lot of those conversations around D&D. &D. And so um, I do it in just a lot of those before class time is where a lot of this gap is tried to, to breach. Um, and then one last thing that I do um, in one of my classes I teach every other year, they do a fandom newsletter where it's actually the entire purpose is to learn and design and make a newsletter, um, but they get in small groups around fandoms they choose. Um, and so I get to kind of an insight into different um, shows or movies or musicians that they like through that. So that's what I do. Yeah, I have a tattoo on my ankle. Uh, that's a Stucky tattoo. So my students almost always comment on it. They're like, is that Captain America? What else is there? I was like, I'm a Stucky fan. <laughs> but I do think that's important because um, the passion that Aaron had talked about before can produce a common ground. Even if the content is not common, the fact that, you know, kind of you're human enough to love something like that uh, often is a, you know, is a way of, of humanizing uh, yourself as an instructor. Because remember, a lot of times there's that, that power dynamic. You can, never, you can never move around because you're still the person who's assessing and evaluating them. Um, so there are, you know, <clears throat> some of the best moments I've found are just those kind of humanizing moments where it's like I become a person and, and not like a power figure. I mean, I still have that. So I'm not denying my authority, but um, I'm, I'm humanized. Um, I think that that humanization, I think that's also, we are in, I'm going to call it like a, a glory day of pop culture. Most of our pop culture is embedded in pop culture. Like we are so meta 
and so intertwined. And when you start to unwind, why do you love this thing? Um, and I've got sort of like a, a personal story of it of, you know, I fell in love with a song that was a cover of something else when I was a teenager. And I didn't know about that original thing. And I got to fall in love with something from another generation because of a thing I fell in love with that was connected to it. And when you tell these types of stories as a human, as a, a person who's in love with stuff that teaches you a lesson, your students have those stories as well. And I think that, you know, when we remind them that we are, yes, assessing them and absolutely hoping that they embrace those learning outcomes and come out as full force, thoughtful citizens with critical thinking skills. Um, we're also learning from them, right? Like, what did you teach me today? What, you know, song lyric did I not catch that was talking about something else? And, and I think that gives us that, that linkage of, you know, our pop culture is pop culture. <laughs> it's, it's so intertwined. Well, it's interesting you say that, Erin, because you were talking about that. And it's like one of the assignments I, I have done. And, you know, I, I don't do it every semester, but I do it every, you know, once in a while, depending on. But I do a genealogy assignment. Right. So because one of my areas of um, I did my play, my, my dissertation on plagiarism and citation. And so one of the things I'm really interested in is having students kind of look at the genealogy of, of artifacts. And a lot of times with pop culture artifacts, that's a really interesting. It's like what? you know, what is this citing? You know, what is this coming from? And kind of giving, you know, actually give them a family tree and they have to kind of fill it out. Um, and so to give them context for how, how those, those things talk to each other. And, but I do think that that's like, we might not share a lot of things, but we all love something. You know, we all kind of, you know, um, we were, we have a passion for, for things. I, I kind of want to maybe wrap us up on, on one last question. And I think it's, it's something that, you know, popular culture studies has struggled with in terms of legitimization, just like fan studies has, and I know communication studies has. Um, and hearing Anna speak, it, it reminded me just how much that still exists out there. So if you're talking with, you know, young faculty, emerging faculty, student, grad students or something, and they want to bring more popular culture into their classroom, but there's that atmosphere or that, you know, pushback about it not being an appropriate thing to do. Cause you know, in the past we would just show people movies in the classroom because we didn't want to teach. That's always been like this old idea. So what would you say to those individuals so that they could be, you know, ready to speak back against these assumptions about what's appropriate and inappropriate for the classroom? I think there is a tie to um, a lot of our indigenous um, ancestors or um, the first peoples in all of our nations. There's these beautiful stories and parables that have been teaching ethics and values and morals and life lessons. And it's we're just in Matariki right now, which is Maori New Year. Um, and that is a lesson of the stars. And you make your planting decisions based on what happens in the stars. And so it's you know, it's astronomy and it's science and it's biology and it's all of these things embedded in these um, in this story. And I think we we forget that story is interdisciplinary and it gives us this opportunity to find a way to teach the student in, in where they are and and we can give them that. And 
this isn't new. Like maybe, maybe using Loki in your class, maybe that's new. Um, but using a story to teach a values lesson or a moral lesson or a memory lesson, like, you know, I still have to sing out I before Eve or when, <laughs> like, like these are lessons that stick with us because they, they're, they're, they've got legs. And I guess when I think about that, that's the foundation of knowledge and how we share knowledge. And if we're hoping to share knowledge, if our you know, if our purpose as instructors is to leave them with skills and tools that they can use when they go out into the regular world, then however we make it stick, it, it doesn't matter. And that story, whatever story, whatever class system you use, I don't care if it is official literature of an old white guy or if it is a new Latinx um, song, it's, it's going to stick. And that's all that matters to me at the end. Yeah, so I, it's interesting because I, um, this is a deeply like personal question for me, but um, my dissertation topic is really about looking at how um, pop culture can, can close um, educational gaps. Um, and so I went to 11 different high schools by the time I graduated high school, or 11 different schools by the time I graduated high school. So between K through 12, I went to 11 different schools, um, mainly because of moving, et cetera. But um, I would have to show up in class and I would have to figure out how to take charge of my own education because my teachers could not do that because I was a new student constantly. For all four years of high school, I was a new student. So um, I would have to close the gaps myself and I did that through pop culture. Luckily, because I have an older taste of a middle-aged white woman, um, it worked in my favor because most of my teachers were white women. <laughs> so um, it helped. Uh, and I was able to actually pull that from them. Um, being on the opposite end though, uh, I really am interested in how can, you know, instead of putting the onus on the student to do that, right? Because otherwise, um, by all means, like statistically, I should have fell through the cracks. Um, however, you know, I used this tool that I found worked for me and that's how I learned and that's how I closed gaps myself. And um, now I get to help other people figure that out for themselves. But the thing is, right, we don't, I, I graduated high school in 08, right? We don't have people don't watch network television as much anymore. There's not a unified kind of language of things that people are consuming outside of Marvel and, you know, other movies. Um, so um, I did drop out. I, I, I'm sorry, I see the thing. I did drop out too, but I went back. Um, uh, but yeah, so right, closing the um, that education gap, I my research wants to look at how we can give the voice to the um, students so that educators will have a toolbox to reach into, consume the content that should be ever growing and ever moving, right? Because pop culture is in flux and it's in flux in different communities, right? So what works for the rural area of Bowling Green, Ohio is not gonna work in Fairfax, Virginia, um, right? Uh, and so what, finding where students where they're at and having kind of a living text is where I'm kind of mentally um, focused on um, my research right now because I think I saw it work for me and I think that like kind of it's weird it's like almost like a religious it's a testimony right but like it's a testimony to me knowing it works so uh you know if people don't buy in 
Um, I think Aaron's also story is compelling, right? Looking at right the what is story as a um, kind of concept, um, but then also kind of pulling examples of how I was able to close certain gaps in my knowledge. Um, it's just really about meeting students where they're at um, and it's a beautiful tool, but again, it's a tool and it has to be used as a tool. It can't just be used as a means in and of itself. On a slightly different angle, I say slightly, very different angle. I think everything that you guys just said is fantastic. Um, when someone asks me why I include pop culture, why I study pop culture, I'm also a fan study. So I get a lot of, why do you study fans? Why does it matter? And my general response is, you know, if it impacts your life, why is it not worthy of study? Um, and so if it's going to make you happy, then let's, let's talk about that. If it makes you really sad and upset, let's talk about that. It was really hard for me to watch through Jessica Jones. Um, I never watched more than the first season, but I wanted to power through it, but it still hurt emotionally to watch it. And there's something to that. There's a discussion that can help that happens around that and that can help us understand our lives and the world around us. Um, and so that's my very short answer when people ask why is because really why not? It impacts us. So let's let's talk about it, let's include it, let's study it. I would I would probably respond to that question in, in much the same way. because uh, I have been asked, I mean, I've taught band studies classes and uh, thought, you know, I've used pop culture in the classroom and it's always like, well, what does it do? And I think that that's the question of, you know, saying, well, what do we want it to do in the world, right? I mean, and that's, I mean, why teach, you know, why teach any content? Why teach anything? It's like, well, because um, it does something in the world. I'm not teaching something that doesn't exist in the world, right? And um, and I also think it's important to think about, uh, to go back to Alex Alexander's point, it's like, part of this is creating common space, right? The, the, the wonderful thing about our world is that we're we're much more aware of all the voices, right? That they're, they're they're becoming more more apparent to us, right? But at the same time, there I mean, this is the canon versus this is the canon argument, right? Now you know we we don't have those shared texts that we all kind of agreed were canonical, um, and I'm not saying that we should go back to that, but I'm saying like one of the great things about having a canon is that you have a common space, right? And so how do you construct that common space? And what, what we see, I mean, Shakespeare was pop culture when Shakespeare was alive, right? I mean, Shakespeare is not high culture. I mean, we've only created it, uh, the high culture narrative around it, um, but it's, it, was, it was pop culture when it was, it was soap opera, right? And so like my response always is, it's like it does stuff in the world. So we need to actually look at it and share it. Laura, Anna, would you like to add anything at this point? Yeah, I was I was gonna say something similar going back to to what Erin said about the goals. It's I think it's about focusing on the skill sets that we want to mm -hmm. teach. If we want to teach a set of critical 
skills for analyzing something, it's better to not have to struggle with the students with something mm-hmm. canonical that we think is, you know, this distinction about high cultural and culture that both Anna and Linda mentioned. It's why struggle trying to convince you to read this thing if you've already watched or know this thing and we can work on building on that skill sets that maybe later when you want to read this other thing, you can still use for that. So I think it's it's that distinction between, you know, the, the object, if we already have the object, we can work on the important parts that it's, mm-hmm. you know, the, the skill set. Anna, anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I think your your uh, takes are are all very interesting, and um, I am actually, yeah, I, I agree with with uh, what you all have been saying about the the gaps that exist, uh, both the uh, technological gaps because, of course, not all of our students have Netflix, not not all of our students uh, have the hardware literally to the, the Wi-Fi enough to to do some of the things that some other students do uh, but also the cultural heritage based gaps that can exist uh, in different places different communities different uh, uh, cities different countries so um, of course uh, I of course, some students will, will have some critical skills because they have had a different uh, education path. Some other students uh, do not have those skills at all. So um, I think really uh, it, it, it should be um, a fundamental aim, I guess, to, to find uh, a bit of a basic, uh, a basic approach, you know, that can work with all of these different uh, and very diverse uh, contexts. And then from there, of course, it's important to make it a little bit more um, personalized according to the class you have. But, but I think really it would be important to, to work a little bit more on methodology and, uh, and on having actual um, instruments, actual tools that we can all use and share and not just, you know, I I have this class and I want to do a popular cultural work in it. I do my research on it, but I'm just going to wing it because uh, there isn't really, uh, I don't know, a consolidated in a way network to teach it, to teach through it. So it, it does feel a little bit like, I wouldn't say really wing it, but, you know, like you're just trying to find a way depending on the students you have. But I would like to have a little bit more of a, a solid uh, base set of methodologies and approaches that can work and, and I can try, you know. I know there are some textbooks, but there aren't so many. And sometimes they... I don't know, I feel they're more oriented towards a researcher, not a student. So of course, uh, I can understand some of the things that, uh, some of the tools that are given, that maybe my students wouldn't, or they wouldn't be appropriate because they do not have research skills, research uh, 
you know, experience. So I think maybe that that could be, uh, of course, it's important to talk about it. It's important to uh, maybe have more of it, even, you know, in conference context, uh, a little bit more work on the education using popular culture text rather than, uh, of course, we all like to publish on popular culture text, our own critical work. But maybe uh, we could develop a little bit more the education part, I think. Well, and I think that that's just a product of, I think a lot of fields have this, right? And that is the product of um, prioritizing the research over the, the teaching, right? I mean, so um, there is, there's a gap in, in many fields in that way. Um, so I don't think pop culture is, is exempt from that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree with you. So part of my research is specifically looking at how to kind of ameliorate this. Uh, we have a need as educators because we're teaching outcomes, learning outcomes for an essentialist approach, right? So what kind of Edie Hirsch talks about as like cultural literacy, um, the idea that there's things that everybody should know to leave. That's like our learning outcomes. But there's also a need to really um, ameliorate that with the kind of um, ameliorate the essentialist approach with that of like a critical pedagogical approach. So something like um, Freire's approach. So I, in my research, I am posturing, I'm putting forth at least that, um, you know, it's uh, that we need a living text that allows us to kind of come as educators to be able to then go and constantly re-educate ourselves because every season there's a new list, right? Of something that's popular, um, literally every season. And we're talking about fall, summer and winter now, right? And sometimes even in between, right? So we have a constant living list, but that we as educators also kind of, if we wanna use pop culture in a lot of ways, we have to constantly educate ourselves. And it's that constant professional development in a way that we can then, I'm trying to figure out how to, in my research, figure out how to get the stuff that people are watching through kind of a qualitative study, right? Um, to create an updated list that keeps on going where educators can then come and like plug in and check what they need to stay up to date on, or at least what they would want to stay up to date on, right? Um, for their kind of student demographics. So trying to fix that approach so that you can reach students where they're at so that they can um, be, uh, get get the essentialist knowledge that they need to get without having to also force white dudes down their throat, right? Oh, well, that sounded really wrong. I did not realize that. But white dead dudes, okay? Um, and their material down their throat instead of just, um, right? Uh, you can do it with other stuff. And yeah, so that's kind of where I'm hoping to take my research. But I think it's interesting that it seems to come full circle. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I, I do have to give a, a plug for um, one of our sister journals with the, Julia, maybe you can help me to make sure I got it right. This is the Southwest Popular Culture Association. They have the journal Dialogue, the Inter Interdisciplinary Journal of Popular Culture and Pedagogy. So they, and it's another um, open access journal that I have actually sent some people who are submitting to us to say, you would probably be better suited over there. So that's another great resource that if you aren't aware of it, please do go check it out. It's just journaldialogue.org.
So the apps, thank you, Julia. <laughs> um, so thank you all for, for coming today. I've, I think we're hearing, you know, the importance of strategy and yet also connecting the importance of affect, bringing affect back in the academy or maybe introducing affect into the academy if it's never truly been there in the past, at least in Western civilization. And I think there's a lot of, of great examples out there for what works and what doesn't. And I'm, we might have to have more of these conversations too about getting at how you can develop that type of list or how you can specifically engage with um, students who have to cross these gaps. So, and I know MPCA, we have these in terms of um, professional development. So that type of professional development is something that I think we could all do, well, we could all benefit from a lot more of. So thank you all for coming today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, live stream stopped, recordings.